And um, lied is a strong word, but I said we were done in Leviticus, and we're not done in Leviticus. So if you want to say I lied, I lied. I'd like to say I, was, I misspoke. Um, I was going back through Leviticus here, and I just wanted to make sure, okay, Lord, did we cover everything? And chapters 8 and 9, I kind of skipped over the first time we went right to the Day of Atonement. Uh, I believe that is in Leviticus 15 and 16 there. And I really felt what back to go back to 8 and 9, and I reread 8 and 9. It's like, yeah, I want to do a, a quick lesson on 8 and 9. Because 8 and 9, I think, is a beautiful picture of us. I really do. And I think I told you last week that when we did the year of Jubilee and the Sabbath's year's rest, that that was my favorite lesson in Leviticus. So I lied again. Leviticus 8 and 9 now is my favorite lesson in the book of Leviticus. As we go through this, I think this is a beautiful picture of you and I and our walk and our relationship with Christ. I absolutely love this picture of this. Now, generally speaking, when we've gone through Leviticus, we've gone and just established all the facts and then went back later and talked about what it represented. That's what we did for the first five sacrifices, for the Day of Atonement. Um, that's what we did for the Year of Jubilee. We're going to do a little bit different tonight. We're actually going to go through it, and as we go through it, we're going to bring the symbolism out at the exact same time. Because a lot of the symbolism of stuff that we've hit before, and now it's all coming together. What you have here in Leviticus 8 and 9 is the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus present the sacrifices. Well, in Leviticus 8 and 9, God says, now I'm getting the priests ready to do the sacrifices. So what you have here in chapters 8 and 9 is the priesthood being established and being prepared for what God has for them to do. And like I said, it's a picture of us. So let's pray and get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the time. Thank you for just the evening, Lord. And just pray you go before this in all ways. And as always, Lord, you teach and we listen, Lord, in your name. Amen. Lots of references tonight, and so make sure you have pen and paper. They're handy and ready. And here we go. So Leviticus 8, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, a bowl is the sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, that may seem like verses of, okay, what's there really to get out of that? Preparation. Now, I think this is very interesting because before God can get Aaron and his sons established in the priesthood, he had to make sure everything was prepared and ready. You had to have the animals ready for the sacrifices, the anointing oil, the unleavened bread. He had to have everything set up and ready to go. Now, I like this because God is a God of preparation. So, therefore, when he says go, you have to realize that he already has everything prepared. Sometimes when God says go, I say, wait a second. Because, Lord, do you realize what's going on? Lord, do you realize what the next step is? Are you sure you're ready for this? God's ready for this. He's prepared. He's so prepared, in fact, that he told Jeremiah back in Jeremiah chapter 1 that I knew you while you were in your mother's womb. And he goes, I prepared you for this ministry while you were even in your mother's womb. Isn't that amazing? Now think back to your Christian walk. We all remember the day that we got saved, hopefully, and remember that season of life where we accepted Christ. But do you realize the preparation that went into that of you becoming a born-again child of God? I got saved when I was a junior in high school. But the preparation started back my freshman year because that's when Mr. Krager started witnessing to me and sharing with me. And for two-plus years, he constantly shared with me, he constantly told me about the Lord, and he constantly witnessed to me. The preparation went on for a couple years, and finally the fruit came my junior year in high school. For some of you, you were prayed over for years and years and years by people you may not even ever known or met. God may have brought different people into your life at different times and seasons, and now as you look back, you realize, wow, Lord, you were preparing me for ministry. You were preparing me for the day of salvation. You had this preparation going where I didn't even see it. So when you see verses 1 through 3 of uh, Leviticus 8, 
Don't just skip over that. Realize that God is a God that likes to dot his I's and cross his T's. And so therefore, once again, and you are in a situation right now where you really feel like there is not much hope, God is preparing behind the scenes when we don't see it and realize it. I love that. I love that he is a God of preparation. And like I said in Jeremiah 1, even in the womb, he says, I'm getting this ready. What a beautiful picture. Look at verse 4. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Next thing you see here about ministry is verse 4. It's public. Ministry is public. The congregation was gathered together at the door of tabernacle of meeting. I, I run into this on a regular basis, and we've talked about this before, those solo individual Christians. Well, I'm saved. I believe in the Lord. I just don't think I need church. I don't think I need ministry. I don't think I need to work with people. I have my own walk with the Lord. God has said from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, body of Christ, family of God, it's a public thing. It, it's, it's a group effort here in verse 4. The congregation comes together. We don't like sometimes being as a group. Why? Because we don't see eye to eye. People don't do things the way we like, the way we want. They rub us the wrong way. Fill in the blank. There's a hundred reasons not to be a body of Christ. But there's one reason to be a body of Christ because God says, that's how I want you. He wants us together as one. He wants us as a family. So anytime I run into somebody that says they're a Christian, born again and saved, but they don't want to be part of the flock or the body, I would say, hey, I try to encourage them. That's part of the walk, is being together as the body, as the family, or as it says there in verses 3 and 4, being part of the congregation. It's tough sometimes. It'd be easier just to fly solo. I'll be the first one to say that sometimes. But there is a power in being together, and this is how God has said, he goes, I want you to work together as one. And we'll build on that a little bit more. Now we get into the actual priesthood. And, and you may be thinking, okay, how does this apply to us? If you're taking notes, write this verse down, 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9. What God says is, you also, speaking to us, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Then in verse 9, he goes, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. God looks at us as a priesthood of Jesus Christ. I find that absolutely fascinating. Biblically speaking, according to 1 Peter, God says, I look at you as a minister for me. So a lot of you may say, well, I'm not in the ministry. You are in the ministry. You're called to be in the priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, check it out. And so when you see Aaron and his sons being prepared here for the priesthood, I think this is a spiritual picture of us being prepared as well too. And as we go through these verses, you will see the preparation they went through, the same preparation that God wants us to go through. So, Key points here to start with, God is preparing something for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11, we spent a lot of time on that on Sunday. He's got a wonderful plan for you. Next step is a public ministry, and that public ministry involves you serving the Lord in some capacity. And I don't know what capacity that is, but it involves you serving the Lord. With those verses as our foundation, now we can see how we become the priesthood that God has called us to be. Verse 6, Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. First thing you see there is the washing of the water. The Bible says in the New Testament that we're washed by the water of the Word. So as you get into God's Word, you are cleansed. I love that picture. I love that idea of when you get up in the morning or if you in the evening, whatever time you spend in God's Word, it is a cleansing process because the more time you spend in God's Word, God's Word is saying, I am washing out that iniquity and sin that is in you. Because as you get into God's Word, it reveals what is wrong in your life and what God wants from you. As it reveals those things to you, you are washed. You're washed by the water of the Word. 
there in verse 6. And so the first thing that you see with Moses, excuse me, with Aaron and his sons, they had to be washed with water. A ceremonial cleansing according to the Old Testament. But for us in the New Testament, it's a picture of us being washed in God's word, being made pure. Verse 7, he put the tunic on him girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him, and he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod upon him. The, the clothing of the priesthood was very ornate and very important, and I, I should have planned ahead because a few weeks ago we put those pictures up of what the priesthood garb looked like, and it was very ornate, very ornate, because part of the reason was is that when these priests were out serving and serving in that ministry, they were supposed to be an example to others, and they were supposed to be something that would easily be seen. In fact, if you go back and read about what the actual clothes were supposed to be, they had little bells, little bells on the bottom of their uh, clothing, so therefore when they walked, there was this noise that was coming. You could tell when a priest was coming towards you. Because there was supposed to be something that was set apart. It was supposed to be something that you would see that person and notice that person and realize. Not to elevate that person above you, but to say that person is serving God in a capacity. Well, if you're called to be a priesthood and I'm called to be a priesthood too, verse 7, we're supposed to be set apart. People should see us and see something different in us. I'm not saying just because you wear a Christian shirt or because you bring your Bible into the break room, but there's something that you are clothed with now that sets you apart from the world. In fact, in Revelation 3, the Bible says that we are clothed in righteousness. As we get saved, the Bible says God gives us a new outfit to wear. The white robe is how he refers to it in Revelation 3. The point is, you are now a new creation in Christ, so therefore when you go into work, when you go into your family, you look different, you act different, because why? You are now part of the priesthood, verse 7, People notice you, and they don't notice you to notice you. They notice you so that way you can point them back towards Christ. And that was a very important part here. So often we say, well, I'm not trying to bring attention to myself. By living the Christian life, you're going to bring attention to yourself. It's just a fact. If you don't want to bring attention to yourself, cuss like everybody else at work and act like them and tell stories like them. You'll fit right in. As soon as you don't act like them, you are bringing attention to yourself. And this is something that we tend to forget in Christianity, is God says you will be separated, you will be different, and the world will look at you as a different type of person. In fact, the world will hate you for that. Because if they hated me, what makes you think they're going to like you? But so often as Christians, we try to do this, let's just all get along. Truth of the matter is, if you're bold in your walk with Christ, you know you're not going to be able to get along with everybody. You are going to look different, act different, verse 7. What else do you get out of this verse 8? Then he put the breastplate on him. And he put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastplate. Now, this is a fascinating thing. And if you want to go a little bit deeper, I encourage you in verse 8 to study out this, this Urim and Thummim and what this is. Because to be quite honest, we really don't know a lot about how this thing really worked. But this is how the high priest, if, you, if I would guess choose this word, spoke to the Lord in the Old Testament. That, that literally means, in verse 8, it means lights and the perfections. We don't know how it worked, and I, I've heard people guess on it, I've heard some good teachings on it, but it's all just speculation. What it comes down to in verse 8, this is how they spoke to the Lord to find out what God's will was for the nation of Israel. Now, for us, you don't have to wear some special breastplate, you don't have to have the 12 stones like the ephod did have on it of the nation of Israel, because why? You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have direct access to God anytime you want it, and you can boldly go to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16, and talk to the Lord. When we went through the Day of Atonement a couple weeks ago, we talked about that. We get to go right to God. Right to God. You have a concern tonight? You can pray and take it right to the Lord. You're feeling burdened? You give it right to the Lord. Lord, I need wisdom? You take it right to the Lord. You don't need to go to the high priest. You don't need to go to the breastplate. You don't need to look and say, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? You just go right to God and ask him. Boy, that's access. What a beautiful picture that is of what we have right there. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Let's move on here. 
And he put the turban on his head, and on the turban on its front he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now that, to me that was a tough verse to say, okay, God, if a lot of this stuff is supposed to represent something deeper, if this stuff is supposed to represent something bigger, what, what does that represent, the head thing? This is the verse I came up with, 1 Corinthians 11.3. 1 Corinthians 11.3. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So by having that turban on, I think that was a picture of the head of them is the Lord. The head of every man is Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.3. And by them wearing that special, and in some translations, I really don't like this word, translate it hat. I just imagine like the little beanie thing, you know, with the propeller on top. Verse 9, it, it's something a little bit deeper than that. But the point is that it's a picture of their head, and the head of their life is supposed to be God. Once again, you see this picture as they're walking. It is a walking picture of the priesthood and of who Christ is. So that turban, verse 9, represents the head of man as Christ. Now, this is a very simple, simple point, but it's really tough for people to grasp because if you're like me sometimes, I don't like the head of my life being the Lord. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. And so this verse reminds me in verse 9, there is something on my head. It's Christ. It's God. Lord, I, I want you to direct me. I want you to guide me. And so therefore... That turban represented the head of them is Christ. They're not just a priest. They're serving God in whatever capacity that God has called them. Let's move on here, verse 10. And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle, all that was in it, and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar, and turned all its utensils and the labor and its base to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Now this is something we've talked about numerous times throughout the Bible. Oil in the Old Testament represents the Holy Spirit. They were anointed in the Holy Spirit. Now, we have access to God by prayer, we don't have to have the special breastplate to seek his will. But even going one step further than that, you are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's an amazing thing. God himself chose to live inside of you and me. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, that oil represented God's anointing on the priesthood. You realize that you're anointed. So when you go out and you want to be a light and a witness and you have every excuse in the world just like me, Lord, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, God says, don't worry about it. You're not the one that's going to do the talking. I'm going to do the talking. I've anointed you with the right words. Yeah, but Lord, I don't know. What am I? Don't worry about it. I've anointed you. Remember when God called Moses to go back to Egypt, Moses has about a whole chapter of excuses. Excuse after excuse after excuse. And whatever excuse Moses had, God said, I have an answer to that. Whatever excuse you have to not serve the Lord, God says, my anointing covers it. And this anointing is not just a drip of oil. I love this passage in Psalm 133. It's actually a very great psalm. It's only three verses long, Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. You see that congregation idea again. Unity, that, that importantness of being one. It's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Now I have a picture of this in verse 2. This is not just a drip. I have a picture of Aaron being poured on almost like when the coach wins the super bowl you know what i mean can't you imagine the guys coming up behind him and dumping oil on him i mean if it's running down his hair his beard down to the edge of his garments talk about being anointed that's anointed and what is saying there is number one if you want unity well unity only comes through the holy spirit verse two 
And if you want the Holy Spirit, you have to be anointed in the Holy Spirit. You have to truly be covered in the Holy Spirit. You know, we use that term baptism of the Holy Spirit, this idea of being completely covered in God and in the Holy Spirit. And this is something us as a lot of Christians don't really look into too much because we look at this idea of the Holy Spirit of, okay, God, live inside of me. Okay, God, every now and then try to tell me what to do. Okay, God, every now and then to speak to my heart. But this idea of being completely anointed and you see this picture of the oil being down your head, your beard, everything. Wow, that's an all-on-fire born-again believer in Christ Jesus. And that's what God said. If you want to be used, if you want to serve, he goes, let me anoint you. Because to go out there and to try to serve as a priest for the Lord without the Holy Spirit, boy, you can't do it on your own. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We have to do it through him. So what you have here through the first 12 verses, you have a preparation, a public ministry, washed, representing being washed in the word. You have the clothes being changed. We're clothed in righteousness in Christ. You have uh, this idea of uh, the Holy Spirit there. And the Holy Spirit seeking him and being in prayer with him. And Lord, where are you leading and guiding us to? Being anointed in him in all ways. You have this idea of the Holy Spirit being there that we may seek him. And the uh, breastplate, you know, John 14 through uh, chapter 16, talks about how we can go to the Holy Spirit. He leads and guides us. So you have this ministry anointed and led by the Holy Spirit and this priesthood here. It's a beautiful picture of what we're supposed to be like as priests serving the Lord there. So that's the first section there of chapter 8. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about that before we move on to the next stuff here? Yeah, Sandra. Yeah, no, very good question. When I say service, ministry, I mean it to the entire world. Too often people talk about, oh, ministry. Ministry means that you're a pastor. No, Bible says everybody's a minister. You know, I was just reading a great book last year, and one of the little catchphrases in that book that always stuck with me is, Every member is a minister. And if you look throughout the New Testament, God has called all of us to be ministers. When we use that term minister today in the 21st century, we think of somebody serving as a pastor. Where God says everybody's a minister. Because a minister means you go to the saved and the unsaved to show them the love of Jesus, point them in the right direction. So yes, ministry can be outside the church. You know, I believe it's important, my personal opinion, that you serve somewhere in your home church to bless your home church. But at the same time, too, when you go out into the world, when you go to work tomorrow, you're going to minister to people. What a, what a great witnessing opportunity you have. When you go to school tomorrow, you're going to minister to people. Uh, you're going to minister to the people at Walmart. I, wherever you go, you have an opportunity to minister to somebody. So, yeah, good question, Sandra. It means the whole world ministering to them and showing them the love of Christ. Anybody else have any other quick questions here, comments before we move on? So that's the preparation. That's the priesthood. Now we kind of get into a little bit more here about the sacrifices. If you look in verse uh, uh, 13 and 14, those are things that we've covered before when we talk about the sin offerings, the burnt offerings, etc. So we're not going to repeat all of that. All that has symbolism of itself, too. If you weren't here for those messages, I encourage you to go ask the sound guys or uh, go back. They'll get you a CD or you can go online and grab one of the old lessons there because all that is important there of what it represents. I do just want to hit a couple points about this. Look at verse 17. But the bull, its hide, its flesh, it's, it's awful. He burned with the fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. We've talked about how that burning outside the camp represents two things. First off, it represents Christ, because in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, it says how Christ was sacrificed outside the camp. But also it represents, too, in verse 17, God doesn't want your flesh. He wants your inwards, your innards. And if you read there, it talks about the innards are going to be cleaned with water. God wants your heart focused on him. He doesn't want your flesh. Our flesh is sinful. Our desires are sinful. God says, I want to skin you and get rid of it. 
And so there's this picture of, I want to take off all that sin and dirt and junk that you have. I want to skin you of that, throw it outside the camp, because Christ died on the cross for your sins. And he goes, I want to take your heart and consecrate your heart, wash your heart. So I always think it's important to hit that in verse 17. Next thing I find interesting in verse 23 is this idea of the uh, blood once again. Verse 23, and Moses killed it, and he also took some of its blood and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Now, the blood has always been used in all the other sacrifices. The altar had blood on it. Uh, all the different places were anointed blood. They actually went before the um, veil and sprinkled blood seven times. Here you see blood actually being on the person. Now, there's numerous ways to look at this, and each one of you may see it a little bit differently, but generally what it comes down to from the way I look at it is blood on the ear. Be careful what you're, you're hearing. What you're listening to, what voices are guiding you and directing you? Is it the Lord? Is it the Holy Spirit? What are you allowing into your life? You know, the Bible says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. Sometimes people come up and say, well, I'm searching God for his will, but I don't hear him. What is he trying to tell me? And one of the first things I say is, are your ears clear? You know, if you're constantly filling your ears with the things of the world, it's going to be difficult to hear what God has in store for you. So blood on the ear, I think, represents hearing what God has to say. Next one, blood on the thumb. Right hand in the Old Testament represented strength. So therefore, the thumb represents what are you doing? Whatever you're doing is supposed to be done through the blood. It's for Christ. And last one is uh, blood on the uh, right foot. Where are you going? I mean, how many times have you seen believers get themselves in trouble because they went to places where they shouldn't be? So careful what you listen to, careful what you do, and careful where you go. You're anointed in the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood was shed for you. So therefore, since it was shed for you, careful with it. How many of us, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, take for granted the sacrifice of Christ? We're used to it now. I've been saved 18 years. I've, I've heard about the sacrifice of Jesus. I mean, here in a few weeks, we're going to have Easter. We're going to have sunrise. We're going to have Excellent Wednesday. So we're going to talk about Christ's death. I know about that. Grave was empty. I know about that. The cross, I know about that. We almost become desensitized to it because we hear about it all the time. Communion. We just did communion a couple weeks ago here on Wednesday night. You know, I'm up here reading the verses in Corinthians. It represents the body, the blood, etc. Well, we've got to be careful about this because when I see verse 23 and I see this visible picture of blood on the ear, blood on my thumb, and blood on the toe, now, oh, Lord, you're really serious about this thing. You know, this, this is really a serious commitment and sacrifice that you're asking, that you did, but now you're asking us to walk in that. And wow, Lord, that, that really hit me as I went through this. Lord, I'm, I'm covered in the blood. Thank God for my forgiveness of sins, but at the same time, too, there comes a responsibility with that. I love the Lord for His grace, but now there's a responsibility on how I live my life. And that idea of service and ministry comes up again, because what you have here in verse 26, if you remember one of the preparations back in verse 2 was unleavened bread. In verse 26 it says, From the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake, a cake of bread anointed with oil, and one wafer, and put them on the fat and on the right thigh. Now we've talked about this before, about the unleavened represents sinless life, anointed with oil, with Christ. Anytime you see leaven, leaven represents sin. But look what they do with this. He put all these things in Aaron's hands and in his son's hands, and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. And wave offering literally means just that. They literally waved it before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them. Now, is that not strange? You have this picture of Aaron and his sons standing there, hands out. Moses comes over in verse 26. Here's an unleavened cake, a cake of bread anointed with oil and a wafer. Put him right in his hand. You pick that up. You wave it for a few minutes, and Moses takes it right back from you. Now, I looked at that, and I think that represents, to me, that represents service. 
I'm just told to do what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and I've got to keep my hands off of it. I thank the Lord for you that are here tonight. So while you're here tonight, you're being placed in my hands in verse 27, I'm going to wave you around for a little bit. But you know what? You're going to leave here in about 10 minutes. You're out of my hands. God bless you. I hope you do what's right in your life. I may have somebody come to this church for five years, six years, five days, six weeks, five months, six months. I have no idea. But while you're here, I'm going to wave you. I'll wave you as much as I can. But eventually you're going to move. Somebody told me years ago about seasons of life and just be joyful for the seasons of life you have with people in the ministry. You don't know how long it's going to be. So for me, that's how I see that. People are placed, events are placed, funerals, weddings, deathbeds are placed in my hands, verse 27, for just a little bit. And it's anointed in the Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to do what's right. But then verse 28, it's taken right from me. Now, to me, that's deep. Because I'm supposed to be ready in service, in season, not a season. So therefore, whatever God places in my hand, I need to be ready for it. Some things I don't want placed in my hands. God says, tough luck, I'm putting in your hands. There's other things that are placed in my hands that I don't want to let go of. God says, I'm ready to move that thing on, that event on, that person on. No, no, this, this one's mine. Oh, that's a dangerous word in Christianity. Mine. That's my person, my ministry, my... No, it's in your hands for a little bit, and if God says to move it on, then you let it be moved on. You know what the next thing I see in verse uh, 27? You don't empty out your own hands. Sometimes I get things in my hands I don't want, and I'm trying to get that stupid piece of bread out of my hand. God says, I put that bread there for a reason. Serve minister, wave it for whatever time frame you have. I don't know what the bread represents for you. The bread may be a co-worker that you have for, for a few weeks at work. And God says, I'm just putting them in your hands for a few weeks, minister to them. It, it may be a situation that only lasts a few minutes. A person with a flat tire alongside the road and you just stop to offer help. And they may say no. But you still say, hey, I just wanted to help and hey, I'll be praying for you and God bless. You may have only had a couple seconds there to make a difference. I don't know. You know, when I generally give somebody something, if I see somebody along the street, whatever, and it's some type of help, I usually tell them, I give this to you in the name of Jesus and the love of Christ. I may only have that wave offering, verse 27, for a couple seconds, but they're in my hand for a little bit. They're out of my hand. Lord, I want to do what I can while they're in there. You know, that's the way I kind of see that. And so often we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we don't try to grab on and hang on for too much longer. Let's finish this up real quick. Jump ahead to verse 30. Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron, his garments, his sons, and his garments of his sons with him. Now, initially, that's a very visual picture there, verse 30. Being sprinkled with blood and oil. Sounds very messy. I think the cross is pretty messy. I think Christianity is pretty messy. But verse 30... You are sprinkled with the blood and the oil of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture that is in verse 30. You are, are covered in the blood of Christ and in the oil of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Revelation 1.5, Revelation 1.5, it says you're washed in the blood of Jesus. I love that. So verse 30, you have this picture of being anointed in the Spirit, washed in the blood. Verse 33, jump ahead. You shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are ended. For seven days she shall consecrate you. Verse 33, I look at that and the word I wrote down for that verse is commitment. Boy, how many of us want to make a commitment to the Lord? But then when that commitment happens, oh God, you ask too much. These people were willing to commit seven days to be sequestered, if you will. That's commitment. Why, it's just seven days. And maybe some of you that sounds good to you. Give me seven days away from everybody. I like that. I don't know. But the point is they were willing to make this commitment to say, Lord, I am yours. I am the husband of Dawn. I am the father of four. And I'm the pastor of Harvest Fellowship Church. But 
really my hat, my head belongs to Christ. And that's who my ultimate commitment needs to be to. And so, so often I make commitments to things of the world, but ultimately I'm committed to God and God alone and to do what he's called me to do. In verse 33, it shows that commitment. But what's the response? And this all works. Put this all together now. You have the preparation, the public ministry, washed in the word, clothed in Christ, anointed in the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's all over you, baptized in Him. The skin and flesh is gone. You are anointed with your ears where you go and your thumbs what you do. You get to serve the Lord. You've made the commitment. You're washed in the blood. What's the result of all this? Jump ahead to chapter 9 and verse um, 22. And Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle meeting and came out and blessed the people. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And the people saw it. They shouted and fell on their faces. The result of this all clicking, verses 22 through 24, God gets the glory. We're on fire for the Lord. In verses 22 through 23, the people are blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed having me. You don't realize that, but you are blessed. I'm blessed having you. That's part of how this is all supposed to work in verses 22 and 23. You bless me, I bless you. Sometimes you don't feel blessed by me. Sometimes I don't feel blessed by you. But the truth of the matter is we are in this together, this commitment, and the result of this in verses 22 through 24, the people are blessed. So the question I asked myself when I finished this lesson is, Lord, when those unleavened breads are placed in my hand, am I blessing people? I mean, are they going deeper in their walks? Am I, am I using that opportunity to witness for you and to glorify you? And I, and I don't know what bread's placed in your hand. I don't know what it is. But when it's placed in your hand for a little bit, are, are you using it for the Lord? Do people walk away from you hopefully feeling blessed? Do people walk away if they're saved, going deeper in their walk with the Lord because of the encouragement you give them? If they don't know you, are seeds being planted in there? Because you're called to be the priesthood. You're called to, to go out there. Remember the two W's that we've said numerous times out here. God has called you to worship, and God has called you to witness. Anything other worshiping, witnessing, is going to probably feel a little empty in life. But God has called us to those two main things. And so I don't know what ministry God has called you to do. Maybe your ministry right now is your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's that coworker. Maybe it's unsaved loved ones. I don't know what ministry God has called you to do, but he's anointed you. He's filled you with the Spirit, and it's by his grace, mercy, love, and blood that you're able to do it. And so when you look here at Leviticus 8 and 9, it's a beautiful picture of servanthood, united together in the Spirit for the glory of God. And I tell you what a blessing it is. I absolutely love these two chapters tonight, and I hope they blessed you as well too. Anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up? All righty. I think we're done with Leviticus now. There was, um, there was a chapter in the uh, chapter 20s I was looking at today, and it's like, ah, you know, maybe we should hit that one a little bit. So we may be done. We may not be done. You know as much as me at this point. So let's uh, pray and uh, take these to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you. Um, what a blessing it is just to serve. Lord, thank you for calling us to this priesthood to serve you. What a, what a privilege and opportunity that is, and help us to never take it for granted, Lord. Lord, just as Psalm 133 says, we, we pray for the Spirit to be upon us, anointing us. We pray for that unity. We pray for that commitment. And just, uh, Lord, go before us in all ways. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys have a good